when I was talking about how things are just seeming to escalate, and trouble here, trouble there, and trouble everywhere else, and it uh, kind of reminded me a little bit of Job. <laughs> you know, it just news came in from every direction, and it got worse and worse. And uh, we know who was behind that. So we got the same thing today with uh, God turning Satan loose and letting him do things that he's always wanted to do. So he's, I'm sure, slacking, slap, uh, smacking his lips with joy over the being turned loose to perpetrate evil upon the earth and upon mankind. But there were a couple of things that uh, I had in mind to say, and I, I did forget. Uh, one is here in Amos 8. We turned there a few weeks ago uh, and discussed the basket of summer fruit and how we had the eclipse that went clear across the middle of the nation uh, at about the noon hour. And God indicates here that the, that could be the beginning of the real ter- terrible trouble that is to come. It also occurred on the new moon, which is also mentioned here in Amos 8, uh, which is when an eclipse occurs, is it a new moon. <coughs> But I mentioned at the time, uh, the flood there in verse 8, that God would not forget our sins and our troubles nationally. And he says in verse 8, Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwells therein, and it shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt or Mitzrium. Uh, Two things there. Uh, One, I mentioned the flood before uh, in Houston, floods in Florida, floods now in Puerto Rico, and now we have Nate uh, churning up in the Gulf of Mexico, which is supposed to hit uh, somewhere, they say, between New Orleans and uh, Mobile or somewhere along the panhandle uh, as early as Sunday, and it should be of hurricane force by then. So that's the third major hurricane apparently scheduled to hit the United States here that quickly. Uh, it also mentions trembling here, which I think is probably speaking of earthquakes. And the ring of fire, I saw a map, <clears throat> I think it was yesterday, showing the ring of fire which starts in New Zealand and goes up through Indonesia and around the, through Japan and across to Anchorage and down our west coast and all the way down South America in which there are many, many, many volcanoes and major earthquake uh, fault lines. And interestingly enough, it starts at New Zealand and it comes around and up to Alaska and the presently active volcanoes that are erupting at the moment go from New Zealand around to Alaska and stop. They come down the American west coast and then they begin in Central America and go all the way down the South American continent. It's like there's the lull before the storm because there's that one section, the United States, that nothing is currently erupting. Uh, so be interesting to see when that all turns loose on this country because everything is active except here, right at the moment. <coughs> Now let's go back to Jeremiah 50, and this one other point, this one came to mind uh, based upon the fact that the Mississippi River is apparently drying up in spots. Uh, 
It isn't the very first time that there have been low water on the Mississippi River, but the uh, New Madrid fault line goes right down the Mississippi Valley, and it's one of the biggest fault lines in the United States. I don't know whether it's the biggest. It may even be bigger than the San Andreas on the West Coast. I don't know. But it's a major fault line in any case. And uh, I think it was in the 1800s there was a major earthquake in that area, but there was not a great population there at the time. Now you've got uh, Memphis and St. Louis, major cities right on the river. And uh, anything along that, that fault line would be a major disaster at this point. And they're expecting it to go off at some time in the future. No one knows, of course, with earthquakes exactly when. But uh, we're at the height of the soybean harvest right now in the Middle West, and the corn harvest comes right after. And already the river is getting so low along about Memphis, through that area is the worst, that they are having trouble getting the barges loaded with grain through there. And they've got as much as a six-day delay because they're all bottled up waiting to go through the locks. It's not free water like it normally is, where they can just sail right on down the river. Now, they are thinking, and this was from the National Weather Service, that with all the earthquake and volcanic activity, the Earth's crust is moving around. And that new Madrid fault line might have had enough movement to allow small fractures in the riverbed, and the water is simply sinking and going away. Uh, it's not like there's been a major drought. Uh, there's been rain back east, and the river should be full at this time, but it's not. It's almost at historic lows. Uh, it, they're saying it's still going lower. Uh, so it may be that barge traffic can't get through there at all pretty soon, and that would be a major economic blow to this country. I also saw a map that they project that the continent is going to divide right there at the Mississippi, and a waterway with salt water open up from Louisiana all the way up to the Great Lakes and might even join the St. Lawrence Seaway Great Lakes and the Gulf of Mexico together along the Mississippi, and it would be wide. And think what that would do to our economy if every bridge for train and truck were to fall in the river and it widened out so that you couldn't get across. How many, how many vehicles go across that river north to south every day carrying trucks carrying goods back and forth across the nation? That would be an, a monumental disaster. Well, Jeremiah 50, uh, verse 37, talks about how a sword is upon their horses and their chariots, our military, and upon all the mingled people. We've got an awful lot of people who have come into the country that are in the midst of her, and they shall become as women. Uh, women aren't noted for their battlefield prowess. A sword is upon her treasures, and they shall be robbed. Now notice verse 38. A drought is upon her waters, and they shall be dried up, for it is the land of graven images, and they are mad upon their idols, wildly seeking their idols. So is this a specific prophecy on our waters in this land that are going to be dried up, even as we see the Mississippi receding day by day 
and drying up. Uh, these prophecies seem to be taking wings. <laughs> They're beginning to fly. And it's scary business uh, what is about to happen to this country, and it, it already is happening. So I just wanted to throw those two more in uh, and reiterate from yesterday that the earth and this nation certainly needs the kingdom of God and blessing and peace and, and uh, His rule as opposed to what we are stuck with at the moment. Now, let's go to Zechariah 14. Uh, that's where I intended to go yesterday and ran out of time to do so. Uh, because we were discussing the plan of God and how Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread, and Pentecost are history. We're already living those. Christ has come and died and been resurrected. The Holy Spirit has been sent. We're awaiting uh, the return of Christ for the first resurrection of the first fruits, followed by the wedding supper on the Sea of Glass when Christ is married, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, when the throne of God will come down to the earth, and all mankind will have opportunity to live at peace and safety for the first time since Satan got to Adam and Eve. And that's what is slated to occur. But let's go back here to Zechariah and uh, pick it up at Feast of Trumpets time, actually, and see what it has to say here, because, as I've said before, Christ is coming several times, not just once. And I want to go through and show you some of the scriptures involved in that, and that Zechariah 14 actually is a part of it, although it's a summary, and we'll see some more detail in other scriptures. But Zechariah is about the end-time church, uh, beginning in chapter 1, and going on through the prophecies leading up to the return of Christ. We'll go back to some of that, but right now I want to go to 14 because we're discussing the coming of Christ here. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Now, we know from many, many scriptures, and Joel, which we saw yesterday, among others, that the day of the Lord is a time of clouds and gloominess, a time of war, a time of trouble, uh, such as has never been before on the face of the earth. So it is a time where God's, Satan's anger first, and then God's is going to be wreaked upon the earth. And that sounds harsh, but stop and think about people on the earth today and what it takes to change their minds. What would it take for the whole world to turn to God and to serve Him and be ready to bend their knee and bow their head to God Almighty? It's impossible under present conditions. It's impossible for anyone to even go and drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. alone. So how are you going to get people around the world to even begin to listen to a God they cannot see at this time? How hard is it for you to convince a neighbor or a friend or a relative of a few truths from the Bible? Like which day is the Sabbath? You know, something just quite simple and basic. They, their minds are absolutely opposed. 
And I accused you and I the other day of having minds that are totally in contrast to God, diametrically opposed to His way of thinking, the works of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. And if we have trouble with it and we are semi-converted, conversion means change, so none of us are totally converted yet. It's a, it's a process. And yet we still fight God day to day with our minds and attitudes and thoughts. What's it like for the world out there who pay no attention to Him whatsoever? I've thought this through and I see that what God is saying has to happen. The seven last plagues, and, come, and it'll come down to the point where unless he intervenes a little early, no flesh will be saved alive, because that's how intransigent, how corrupt, how against God that the population of the earth is. And by then, the beast and the false prophet will have taken over, and they will be worshipped as God. And there is no way that this world would turn to Christ. In fact, they're going to kill his representatives and throw a party. Revelation 12, end of the chapter. It is going to take the death and destruction of nearly the entire population of the earth before anyone is going to be willing to listen. It will take that to humble the population. So, when God says all these things are coming, they sound horrible. But let's not forget that He is a God of love. Now, it sounds harsh when you see what has to happen. But He has in mind to save the world, ultimately. Romans 11. All Israel shall be saved, verse 26. Uh, not every individual, but the vast majority because there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, at least a small amount of it. So, he is, all this destruction is coming on this nation, where over 90% will be killed in Western Europe and all the rest of Israel. But in humbling them, they'll come up in the great white throne judgment and live and be taught the truth. And then they will be converted. Not now. It's impossible to convert them at this point. So, a great humbling is coming. And those who survive into the millennium will have seen 90, over 90% of the population of the earth killed around them. Daniel seems to indicate that there will be 100 million people left out of nearly 7 billion today. 100 million is not very many. That's roughly a third of what this nation alone contains. A little less than a third. But that's what it's going to take for him to be able to save us. Why do we discipline our children? To save them from themselves. <laughs> you know, they get in bad attitudes, they do things they shouldn't do, and they have to be corrected. And they, as many humans, M-I-N-I, little humans, have contrary rebellious, stinking, rotten, selfish attitudes. Now, they can be sweet and lovely. I understand that. But they can also be very carnal and rebellious. And if you don't correct that, they'll just get worse and worse and worse. So God is going to have to punish this world severely in order to begin to get it on the right track and to keep from getting worse and worse. 
So all this death and destruction and misery and horror that is coming that scares us is really an act of love because he is going to chasten every son whom he loves and he loves the whole world enough that he sent his only begotten son to save not a few but the world which is ultimately what he will do. But there's an awful lot of trouble coming in between. So when it says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes here, thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of you. So he's going to divide the spoil. He's speaking to Israel here, of Israel, right in the middle of us. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall be, go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, who will be in Jerusalem at that time? Will it be you and me? Is it talking about our women being ravished? No. Remember Matthew 24, tied with Daniel 9? Daniel, well, let's, let's go through that very quickly, just to review. Let's go to Daniel 9. Here it talks about the city of Jerusalem being built. Uh, that city in the Middle East today is, was built by the Arabs. It is not the true Jerusalem. The topography doesn't fit. The history doesn't fit. Uh, that's over here. Uh, but that city has to be built. The one, in the one in the Middle East is there. It's been there for a long, long time. But the one over here is desolate and has been for many generations, as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other prophecies indicate. So he says, the people of God are going to build the holy city in chapter 9, verse 24. And it'll be over a 70-week period, a little over a year and a quarter. And then, once it is done, the temple will be built first, then Jerusalem built. Uh, and in verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for a week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So the consummation of time uh, on this earth is what it's speaking of. Now, Daniel is talking about Jerusalem being destroyed, and if you thumb over to Matthew 24, you will see Christ's Olivet prophecy about the end of the age. They ask him, when's the end of the age, and so on. He says, many will be deceived in verse 5, and you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled. These things have to come, but the end isn't yet. We're there, and the end isn't quite here, but we hear wars and rumors of wars. Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. <coughs> uh, our president just announced that he is against the nuclear treaty that we made with Iran. Uh, he wants to remove it. Now, I've been saying for a long time that Daniel 8 may indicate that we uh, attack Iran because it says that we the, the goat from the west that doesn't touch the ground. We do most of our stuff by air. 
will break the horn of the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes apparently uh, were Iraq, and we broke that horn. And the Iranians call themselves the Persians, as indeed they probably are. And I believe that uh, we have to break the horn of Iran. Then it says, the horn of the goat will be broken. The goat that comes from the West, which America is known as the West. So, I look for us to attack Iran, and I've been watching for indications of that, but most of the neocons in Washington, D.C. do want to attack Iran. And our president now is saying we will not honor that treaty. If you're going to go ahead with your nuclear threat, we will take care of you, is essentially what he's saying. So, and many of the military people want that to happen in any case. Well, that plays right into the other prophecies of the King of the North coming against us because the King of the North, apparently, the leader of it, is Russia, allied with China. And Psalm 83 shows a, an, uh, a conglomeration of many nations who will rise up against America. We are pretty much universally hated uh, because we beat up on the world as the hammer of the earth, as Jeremiah 51 says, for a long time now, and they're tired of it. We're the largest rogue nation on earth. hate to say that about my country, but that's what we are. We beat up on anybody, anywhere, anytime we feel like it. And the people in Washington who are selling us out, and have been now for several different presidential uh, experiences, Jeremiah also says that our leaders will give their hand. In other words, they'll make a deal to sell us out to the king of the north. So, uh, our leaders know what will happen if we attack Iran. They know. The Russians and the Chinese won't stand for it. And they will make an alliance against us and we will be destroyed, just as all the scriptures say. So, this is coming down and coming down very shortly. So, when it says nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, uh, we're seeing it. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. Again, the ring of fire is erupting all around its circle except on our coast. But that will happen soon. These are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to be afflicted and kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Who? Well, in a larger sense, Israel. All the nations of Israel. It's not just a few Jews over in the Middle East. There's actually more Jews in New York and Miami than there are in the Middle East by far. Uh, and many of those in the Middle East are not true Jews or Edomites anyway. And Edom, Esau, it will be allied with the king of the north as Obadiah shows and rejoice when we are destroyed. So when they talk about the Zionists and the Jews, uh, they're talking about the Edomites for the most part. Because the true Jews and all the other nations of Israel, all twelve tribes, are going to be destroyed because of disobedience to God. So, in a larger sense, they want to kill all white people, which are essentially the Israelites and Israelite mix. And they will also then want to kill those who are true Christians. And Satan knows who they are. They're the light of the earth, and in a world of darkness, he can see points of light here and there. 
George H.W. Bush when he talked about the thousand points of light and the illuminated ones was referring to he and his elitist cronies. But in God's view, his people are to be the lights of the world. And they will go to Zion and gather and be the light of the world. So Satan is putting a uh, red herring in front of us. He's trying to make his illumined ones the ones that will rule the earth. He is a, was a globalist all the way through. The Illuminati, the illumined ones. No, we're the ones that have the light of God, not those people in the world. So Satan knows where they are. And 90% of the church is going to go into the tribulation, as we shall see, and Satan will try to kill them first. They're, they'll be his first target above all. And they'll betray one another and hate one another. So even people of God are going to hate, one, hate each other and betray each other. Many false prophets will arise and deceive many, and because iniquity, sin, will abound, the love of many shall wax cold. People will begin forgetting the laws of God and begin to imbibe in iniquity, and then, of course, they won't love each other anymore. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. So hang on to the knot at the end of the rope. <laughs> uh, because don't give up. Hang on, and you'll be saved in the long run. Now, once all these things happen, and they're just now starting to happen in earnest, not during Herbert Armstrong's day. At this point in time, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, that ties with Revelation 12, showing that the two witnesses will preach around the world, and when they're killed in the streets of the true Jerusalem, three and a half days later, the resurrection will occur. And Herbert Armstrong and his son did not fulfill that. They may have been minor types of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses of Haggai and Zechariah, but they weren't certainly the final uh, iteration of that. So, when you see, now this goes back three and a half years, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, in the temple, has to be built, whoso reads, let him understand. There is a parenthetical thought that is added because most Christians and most of the church will not understand. They don't know where Jerusalem is. They don't know where the promised land is. They won't know where the people of God are. And they're still looking to go to Petra somewhere in the Middle East, which isn't mentioned in the Bible. Zion is the place of refuge all through the Bible, if you want to look it up in a concordance. It's all through the Psalms and other places. So, let them who read understand. There's something that they're going to miss otherwise. Then let them which be in Judea, the true Judea, flee into the mountains. Now, there are no mountains around the Middle East Jerusalem. There are some hills. It's basically rolling country and hills. I, nothing I would call a mountain uh, at all. But up here, we have high mountains over 11,000 feet right here in southern Utah. Uh, Brian Head goes up that high, and the others are like 10. <coughs> 
And those are the mountains of the original Judea. We'll see some of those things on Sunday. We'll see uh, petroglyphs that show the whole history of mankind and Israel written on the rocks in petroglyphs. And it's very easy to discern the story. We'll see a petroglyph of Christ crucified on the side of a volcano, of which there are two on the site of the original Jerusalem. Uh, everything fits. We'll even talk about the former and the hinder sea in Zechariah 14 here in a little bit if I get there, uh, which there are two seabeds or lake beds on either side of this Jerusalem, which is north of Zion, directly north of it. And you don't have those beds of the former and the hinder sea over in the Middle East. They just don't exist. It's not there. So anyway... Let him who reads understand and flee into the mountains of Judea to Zion. And you'll find all through the prophecies, flee to Zion, go to Zion. Uh, We'll preach God from the mountains of Zion. Uh, It's all through Zechariah and Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets everywhere. So you flee into the mountains and, and don't go from your housetop. Don't go back in from the field. Woe if you're giving, uh, nursing a child in those days. And pray that your flight not be in bad weather or on the Sabbath. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, nor ever shall be. Okay, so God's people, as we're going to see when we get in further into this series, are going to build the temple. Not the Jews who aren't godly. They're worshiping Satan. Christ told them that, didn't he? You worship, you know not what. Told their leaders that. They haven't changed. They're still worshiping Satan. He made that very, very clear. He says, I'll have nothing more to do with you except the ministry that I've set up. And the church that he's set up. And they haven't done it yet. So it's not going to be the Jews that build God's temple. The Jews might build a Jewish temple, but they're not going to build God's temple. That's got to be God's people. And we'll see that very clearly. And then they will build Jerusalem. So God's people will be there at the temple of God and Jerusalem. But when that abomination is set up, spoken of here in Matthew 24 and Daniel 9, they flee immediately to Zion. He says, when you see those armies about Jerusalem, you get out of there now. Don't go back. Just go. Wherever you're standing, go, or you'll die. So God's people will not be in Jerusalem when the day of the Lord comes in earnest, as we are reading here in uh, Zechariah 14. Who will be? The beast and the false prophet are going to defile the temple, defile the altar, even as Antiochus Epiphanes did it in history. And they will take over Jerusalem. Okay? They'll be there for three and a half years. When they set up that abomination of desolation, they are setting up their government, the world government, beast and false prophet, in the true Jerusalem. And they will be there for three and one half years while the two witnesses go all over the world and the church is secluded and protected in Zion. So when the day of the Lord hits and God says they'll come against Jerusalem to battle, they're going to be coming against the beast and the false prophet who are the ones who are in charge there then and their women are going to be ravished and their people killed. Not God's people. They'll be in a place of safety by then. 
Then shall the Eternal go forth, verse 3, and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Now, we're going to see a scripture in a few moments which show when Christ is going to go forth and fight the nations and destroy them as when he fought in the day of battle. <clears throat> you, you know, we've got the Battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's probably the hurricane fault line that goes from uh, Hurricane and Leverkin right straight on up to Cedar City and on up to Parowan and so on. A major fault line along there. And it is a valley just west of a high mountain range. Uh, you don't have that in the Middle East. <coughs> You've got a couple of draws that they call the Valley of Armageddon. <laughs> I mean, that's all it is. It's just a draw. Not a very high one at that. That's the, that's the Valley of Armageddon. They're trying to put these things in something that just doesn't fit at all. If you're going to flee to Zion, the Zion in the Middle East is outside the old city wall there. You cross a paved street, two-lane street, and there's a curb, and then it goes downhill into a cemetery, and that's what they call Mount Zion. Psalms calls it the joy of all the land. It says, count the towers in Zion in another place in the Psalms. And on and on it goes. So, that's a small graveyard that they call Mount Zion in the Middle East. So, here you're going to have thousands of people gathering in the cemetery and sitting on headstones for three and a half years. I don't think so. When you see this Zion, you'll have a different perspective. <laughs> This is the one God put his name on. I, I had a little trouble with that right at first. Well, why would Mormons and Methodists name the things in Zion? And then I realized when Abraham got to Jerusalem, the people that were there had already named it before Abraham got there. Is God capable of having someone put his name where he wants it, even though it may not be Abraham or Moses? I think he's big enough to do that. <clears throat> anyway, there are several different comings of Christ scheduled. And that's what I want to cover next in terms of when the, how this is all supposed to play out and what he does each time he comes back. Because there's more than one coming mentioned right here in Zechariah 14. We'll see corroborated by the Scriptures. So he's talking here about a battle that is going to occur in which the beast and false prophet who have taken over Jerusalem are going to be fought against. And even Christ himself is going to come and fight against those nations. Then you have a break, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Now, it doesn't have to be the same 24-hour period. When he speaks of the day of the Lord as that day, it covers several years. The day of the Lord itself, the seven last plagues, last a year. So the time when God begins to intervene and Christ begins to do His mighty and mysterious work encompasses the day, the time, when Christ will begin to intervene through the time that the intervention is complete. Speaking of that whole period of several years. So in that day means... 
when these things begin and all through it until its conclusion, if you will. Not just a 24-hour period, because very obviously these events that are occurring have to occur over several years. The tribulation itself is three and a half years. The day of the Lord, or the seven last plagues, God's anger as opposed to Satan's wrath, is a year long. So there's four and a half years. And he's going to begin to intervene with the church even before that, as we shall see. So when it says day of the Lord, it's talking about a time of trouble that lasts throughout the end time period. So we'll see here in a moment uh, different comings of Christ. Let's, let's start into that here, and we'll, we'll come back to Zechariah 14, but there's a break right there in that particular intervention. Let's go back to Zechariah 2. Now, Zechariah is aimed at the two witnesses and the end-time church remnant that gathers to do God's work here at the end time. And Zechariah starts writing in the middle of Haggai, We'll, we'll cover that later, but I just to kind of give a setting here of the, the context and the time element. Uh, he says Jerusalem is going to be built back in verse 4, uh, and inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Now, this is when the two witnesses are going to be there to take care of the church, as chapter 4 shows. And, and God says, I will be a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So he's going to be with her during that period of time. Now, why would he need to be a wall of fire around her during the millennium? Wouldn't need to be, because all uh, opposition will have been put down by then, and there will be peace. A wall of fire is a defense, uh, and a glory in the middle of it. And he says, come forth and flee from the land of the north. So they see, that's premillennial. That's before Christ has returned to reign in glory uh, because there's still something to flee from. The, the king of the north is coming on this nation as the leader, Ephraim, of uh, Israel. So he says, flee from it. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, says the Eternal. So the church is scattered now around the world. He's been spewed out of his mouth. He's been scattered everywhere. Uh, and he says, flee from the king of the north. It's going to be a world-ruling empire before it's done. Beast and the false prophet. Verse 7, deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwells with the daughter of Babylon. Where's most of the church? right here in the daughter of Babylon, America. Uh, other translations translate that, uh, flee to Zion, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. And I think that's the more collect, a correct meaning. You flee to Zion to get away from the destruction that is coming. So this is all premillennial for sure. And he says in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I will come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. Now, we prayed before this service that Christ and the Father would be here in spirit and be with us with what is spoken, with what we understand. And indeed, I believe that that is the case. He's here with us in spirit. 
Now, this is talking about something more dramatic and more immediate at the time. Because the church will have fled to Zion, as told to here. And he says, I will come and dwell in the midst of you. And I will be a wall of fire or a protection for you from Satan and the beast that will be ruling the earth. So he's going to protect his people. And he says, they will sing in the heights of Zion. The heights mean the mountains, like we have here in Zion National Park. God caused it to be named that, I have no doubt. And the site for the city of Jerusalem, north of it, is right there. You don't have that in the Middle East. You have that Jerusalem the Arabs built, and to the side of it is what they call Mount Zion, which isn't a mountain at all. Uh, But here, you have Zion, and then due north of it, you have a basin that has two lakes with a hill in the middle, former and hinder sea, right there, due north of Zion, just like the scriptures say. And the Mount of Olives is the correct distance from, I believe, where the original site of Jerusalem was, desolate now for many generations, and no one would live there, Jeremiah tells us. And so does Ezekiel, I believe, Isaiah. There's several different mentions of it. Uh, that it would be desolate for many generations. Well, that Middle East Jerusalem has never been desolate. It's been conquered. Walls have been knocked down and rebuilt, but there are always people there. But he says no one would live uh, on the true Jerusalem until it is restored. And that is true to this day. Anyway, uh, he's going to come and dwell. Well, that's a coming, isn't it? Now, this isn't the first time Christ has come back since he left. I think all of churchianity and Christianity thinks there's only one second coming. How can several comings be a second coming? He came back, spent three and a half years in the desert with Paul, didn't he? Taught him in the desert for three and a half years. He came back and was seen of the apostles in Jerusalem after he had gone back. So that was his first coming. (laughs) And then with Paul, might have been his second. He, He said, I will not be or speak much with you after I go back to my Father in heaven. Didn't say, I will never see you again until I come back at trumpets. Didn't say that. He said, I won't speak much with you. So here he tells us, he's coming back here at the end time. Once the church has been gathered, the remnant of it, And the two witnesses are teaching them. He will come and dwell in the midst of us. Now, we just went through some scriptures in Ezekiel, which showed a chariot of fire, uh, that Christ was there, and that's his portable throne that he moves about wherever he goes. And it just makes me wonder if when he says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to be a wall of fire around you, if he's coming in that heavenly chariot, And it had fire coming out from the wheels and so on, as we read there in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's an end-time prophecy talking about today. So did he show himself to Ezekiel as a forerunner of what he is going to do here at the end time? And he may come back in, let's say, semi-glory. He won't come back in all his glory, perhaps. But enough so that we'll know he's there and that he's dwelling with us, and he's being a wall of fire around us. Hey, this isn't my idea. I'm just reading it out of the Bible. I didn't even have this idea until I read it in here. Okay? 
It's what God's saying. How did I get to Daniel 9 again out of Zechariah 2? Anyway, he says, I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal, and many nations shall be joined to the Eternal in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. And the Eternal shall inherit Judah his portion, he says 10%, a 10% remnant in Isaiah 6 and other places, his portion, his tithe, his 10% will be in the Holy Land, and, shall, and he shall choose Jerusalem again. Jerusalem was chosen in the past, then it will be defiled, has been defiled and left desolate, but it's going to be chosen again. And in Zechariah 14, he says, I will rebuild it in its own place, indicating that it's the Jerusalem everybody looks at today is not in the original proper place. Let him who reads understand. So Christ is coming back, let's say in this end time, His first coming, apparently, is to dwell with His church during the Great Tribulation, during the three and a half years of tribulation when the witness is going out to the world. And, as I said the other day, none of these nations in this new world order are going to allow airplanes containing the two witnesses to land at their airports and take off. They just ain't going to do that. So how are they going to get there? Well, Elijah was picked up and transferred to another place, as was Enoch. Uh, and Elijah is one of those two personalities in type who will be at the end, Moses and Elijah. So if Elijah was picked up and moved, the two witnesses may also be picked up and moved wherever God wants them to preach that day around the whole earth for three and a half years. <coughs> Now, will he just pick them up in the clouds and whisk them away? Or will they latch on to the, the, the bed of the chariot of fire and be taken there? Wouldn't that shock people in Hong Kong and Timbuktu? If here comes this chariot of fire and lands there and they can't do anything about it and those two walk off and start preaching God to them? They would come to hate them an awful lot. Enough that they'd kill them in a final battle in Jerusalem three and a half years later. I don't know. I'm just going by the Bible examples of what God has done before when He needed somebody moved somewhere else. Well, wasn't Philip taken away there after he talked with the, uh, the eunuch there and baptized him in the river? He's gone. The eunuch looked up, where's Philip? Gone. You didn't see him walking away. He's just gone. So there are examples of that in the Bible. And God is a God of patterns who repeats things. And He's already said the things He's going to do here in the end time are going to be so great that you would completely forget the Red Sea and all that happened there. It will be so much more dramatic, so much more powerful that the greatest event in Israel's history, other than the coming of Christ, but I mean a physical event, was the Red Sea. And he says this will, this will make that so pale that you won't even remember it. This is going to be dramatic. Satan is going to be putting his best foot forward 
to convince the world that they ought to worship Him now and forever in His millennium, and God is going to put a fly in the ointment. And it will be a dramatic one, a big fly. So He's going to be there at Jerusalem. I don't know how visible or how glorious, but He's going to be there, and He's going to be a wall of fire and a defense around it, because the New World Order will be trying to destroy it. And then He's going to back off and let them make it desolate after it's built. They take it over for three and a half years. And then the final battle between the two witnesses and them will occur right there. And three and a half days later, Christ is going to return and they're going to quit texting and twittering each other because they'll be petrified. It says they're going to party send messages and gifts to one another when they kill the two witnesses. They'll think they won. Nah, just wait a little bit. <clears throat> so there's the first coming in the end time, is Christ to dwell with His people in Zion. Okay? Then let's go on to First Thessalonians 4. This is the one we've always looked at, but it's not the first time He comes in the end. It's the second time, at least. I might still be missing something. I don't know. But here in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, Paul talks about it. Uh, he says in verse 15 that when the resurrection comes, those uh, who are dead or asleep in Christ uh, will not come before those of us here at the end. Just a split second before, perhaps. For the Eternal Himself, verse 16, shall descend from heaven with a shout. So if He's been here dwelling with His people in Zion, <coughs> when the two witnesses are killed, He's going to go back to His throne in heaven. Because when He descends here, He comes from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So He mentions the trump here. He mentions it also in 1 Corinthians 15. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Eternal in the air. So he's not coming down to Jerusalem. He's coming down. We go up and meet him in the air. Okay? Does that mean we come on down with him at that time? No. He doesn't come onto the earth at that time. We rise to meet him in the air. That's what it says here so far. And so shall we ever be with the Eternal. We will never leave His side again once we rise in the air to meet Him at this coming. This coming at the seventh trump. The last trump, it calls it in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. The seventh. Never leave His side again. Wherever He goes, we will go. Because by then, or soon right after this, we marry Him. And he will take his wife everywhere he goes. She will never be left at home alone again after the period between uh, Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets, where she had the long, hot summer to prepare herself and get ready. But once she marries Christ, evermore with him, always be with him. Wherefore, comfort you one another with these words. So that is when he comes to get his saints. Now let's go to Revelation 15. 
Revelation 15. Now you can see by the events that occur that we're talking about different comings of Christ. Comings and goings, if you please. Because it takes quite a bit to get all of this worked out. <clears throat> now, after the tribulation of three and a half years, the great tribulation spoken of in Matthew 24, he says the day of... Uh, let me go back and read that because it's important to understand this. Uh, let's go back to Matthew 24. Now, we've already read about the gospel being preached and people having to flee to Zion for safety. Now, let's go on down. Uh, church has gone into safety there. Christ has been dwelling with them at that point. Uh, and it says that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect, and the time being short in verse 22 through 24. Uh, verse 26, Wherefore, if they shall say to you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Now, that doesn't mean that he hasn't been here dwelling with his people. But when the event about to be described here is done, he will be at his Father's throne. He won't be in the desert. He will have been there for a while. Now, there might have been people who thought he was coming back for good when he was out there with Paul. He was in the desert for a while, right? Isn't that what Paul said? He taught him in the desert for three and a half years. So Christ has been in the desert already, historically, since he went back to his Father's throne. And he's coming back again to be with the church in Zion for three and a half years as their protection. Then he goes back to his Father's throne, and he says... If they say he's in the desert, don't believe it. He's not going to be there. He's going to be at his Father's throne. Or is he in the secret chambers? What's the secret chamber? Zion. It tells the church to go into her chamber and wait there in Isaiah. So the secret chambers are the secret places of the stairs, spoken of in Song of Songs 2. Where are the stairs? We are on the edge of the Escalante Grand Staircase National Monument as we sit here today. These red cliffs are the first step. Then they graduate to white ones and then pink ones, just like a staircase. And man has called it a staircase. It's named that. So he will meet with his people in the secret places, the chambers, secret chambers of the stairs, right here in Zion. Zion is part of that staircase. It goes from hurricane fault line all the way to the coxcomb on the way to Page. Those stair steps of mountains. All fits. So he won't be there anymore. He will have been there, but he won't be there at this point. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. God's people are going to be gathered to him. Immediately, now notice this. This is what I was headed for. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. We know the tribulation to be 1260 days, three and a half years, 42 months from Revelation. Okay? This is something that occurs after the tribulation. The two witnesses will be killed. Christ will return in glory and will rise to meet him in the air and be ever with him. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power, notice power, and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So, right after the tribulation, Christ is going to come and get his saints, three and a half years after the uh, two witnesses are killed. And then, at that time, it is going to grow dark, and the moon withhold her light in the sun, that is the day of the Lord specifically spoken of in Joel and the other prophecies when it will be dark. And we'll see in just a moment that that's when the seven last plagues will be unleashed upon the earth. So he will return immediately after the tribulation, take his saints, and the seven last plagues and the time of darkness spoken of by Joel will start. And it'll last a year. Now let's go back to Revelation 15 and see that. I saw another sign in heaven. This is signs in the heavens. Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now during the tribulation, you're going to see the wrath of Satan. But immediately after the tribulation, you're going to see the wrath of God. Time of darkness and clouds and destruction. Seven last plagues. <clears throat> so during the time of the seven last plagues, that gives you the time setting here, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass. Where's the sea of glass? Before the throne of God. Mingled with fire. There's fire all around about the throne of God. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, the 666, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So the 144,000, the bride of Christ, who are resurrected when First Thessalonians 4 occurs at the last trump, will be standing on the sea of glass before the throne of God. They are the ones who resisted taking the mark and had the seal of God on their forehead instead of the mark of the beast. They're going to stand on the sea of glass before God, having the harps of God. He will pass out musical instruments. And those of us who can't will learn to sing and play. Thank you very much. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, so they're, they're standing on the sea of glass, singing to God the Father, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you King of saints. Who are the saints? All through the New Testament, the saints are the firstfruits. Who shall not fear you, O Eternal, and glorify your name? Now, in contrast, as they're standing on the sea of glass, singing the song of Moses and the song of Christ... The seven last plagues will be raging down here on the earth, killing off 
everything that Satan hasn't been able to kill up to that point, down to a hundred million. And so they're going to say, who will not fear you? They've learned to fear God, but the people on earth haven't yet. But they'll be learning it, just as these are singing. For you are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. They haven't yet, but they will. When? During the millennium. For your judgments are made manifest, and after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, so that gives you the timing again, when the bride of Christ is standing on the sea of glass, the seven last plagues are unleashed. And having their breasts girded with golden uh, girdles, And one of the four beasts uh, gave to the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God. So, the day of the Lord, that year, the seven last plagues are when the wrath of God comes. Now, let's combine that with Revelation 19. Now, he talks about the destruction of this nation in chapter 18. We're the ones who have made the merchants of all the world rich. We're the ones that are destroyed, and all the merchants of the earth cry and weep and wail out in the oceans because they can't come and trade. Uh, This is the great abomination, the great horror of Revelation is this country. Uh, God says that himself in Ezekiel 16, an end-time prophecy. He calls Israel the great whore. God does that. It's not the Catholic Church. It's this nation. The Catholic Church has not made any nation rich. They've impoverished every nation they've ever gone to and stolen everything they had. It's not the Catholic Church. We're the ones that have made the world rich. So, Revelation 18 is the destruction of this country. And after these things, after this country has been taken into captivity... I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and honor, and power to the eternal our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. God is the one that says in Ezekiel 16, Israel is not only has she hired her lovers, she's paid the lovers. We've got a big foreign aid program and foreign weapons programs that we give weapons to different countries to help us kill other people. So they're going to be holy people standing on the throne of God. We just read that in chapter 17. And the four and twenty elders worship God and saying hallelujah and so on. Down to verse 7 it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, (coughs) for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So after this nation has been destroyed, the tribulation has occurred, Christ has come and taken his bride, met her in the clouds, took her to the throne. There she is on the sea of glass, and she's ready to be married. Well, Day of Atonement pictures at one month, becoming one, Christ becoming one with his bride. So it happens 
right after the Feast of Trumpets. Trumpets, five days later, we keep the Day of Atonement. So we meet him in the air, typified by trumpets, go to the throne, and marry before the throne of God. Father performs the ceremony between Christ and the 144,000. Now let's see what happens next. They're being married there. And he said to me, Write, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So they're there to marry him. The wedding supper is about to take place. I fell at his feet and worshipped him. And he said to me, See you do it not. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, okay, the bride is there being married. Now, Christ has been here dwelling with the church in the secret chambers. He leaves there, goes back to his Father's throne, comes in glory, feasts of trumpets, resurrects the bride, takes her up, and marries her. Now what happens next? Read on. Verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. So here's heaven opened, and here's Christ ready to judge and make war. Now, he didn't make war when he came back Feast of Trumpets, did he? No. The saints just rose to meet him in the air. Went back and got married. Now he's ready to come down and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. John 1, 1, that's Christ. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who are they? The bride, clothed in white, clean linen, the garments of righteousness, the wedding garments. Remember, we'll ever be with him. When he resurrects us, we'll go up to the throne, get married. So when he comes back to make war, we'll still be with him, right there with him. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his side a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then it talks about the supper of the great God at the end of verse 17. This is a different supper than the wedding supper. This is the supper after he's come with his sword and destroyed a lot of people. And he calls the birds together the fowls of the heavens, to come and eat the flesh of kings and flesh of captains and so on, the flesh of all men, both free and bond, small and great, and the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse. And he took them and threw them in the lake of fire. And we're with him when he does this, having come down with him, ever with him. So this is another coming. This is, by the things that happen, it's totally different than him coming and rapturing, if you will, or taking up the saints. Totally different scenario. And they're already with him when he does this. They're not being resurrected at this point. So this is another coming. That's the third one we've read about today. I'm out of time. Shall I go on and tell you the next one? we got nothing to do but eat. And we don't have any food.
Yeah, we got a barbecue at four. I promise by four, this will be over. Anyway, let's keep this going just for a few more minutes and see the, the next time he comes, the fourth time, here at the end. Because this is going to be totally different now than him coming to fight with his bride with him. All right, let's go on to Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, you can go to Ezekiel, and and it shows there in chapter 47 (coughs) that no more sea doesn't mean no more water. It means no more salt water. Because there's going to be a great river coming out from under the throne of God that is going to purify the seas, and the salt will be gone. So all water will be fresh water at that point. Ezekiel explains this. That's an end-time prophecy, too. So we see something new coming down. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we don't have the original physical Jerusalem now. We have the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. And guess who's bringing it? You didn't see the heavenly Jerusalem come down at the Feast of Trumpets. Paul didn't mention that, did he? Didn't mention, doesn't say anything here about war anymore. We read that in chapter 17. Here we see a heavenly Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the house, the home of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. He didn't come back to dwell in any of these other things, times we talked about. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And he'll wipe away all tears from their eyes. There'll be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne, now this is the new Jerusalem coming down, and it has a throne. And he sat on the throne in this vision of the new Jerusalem coming down, coming to rule, sit on the throne. And he said, I'll make all things new. Now, that doesn't mean the earth is going to be burned entirely to a crisp, as Ellen G. White said, based on her interpretation of Isaiah 24. She left out parts of that. (coughs) Where it says men will be destroyed in Isaiah 24, it says, and few men left. And she left that out of her prophecy. (laughs) Well, out of seven billion, there'll just be a few left. About a hundred million, Daniel says. So he's going to make all things new. Fukushima will disappear. Remember, the, the fish die in the sea during all these horrible things that are happening at the end. The plants are destroyed. Everything's going to be renewed and made beautiful again, like it was in the original creation. So he says, it is done. It's this, this, this finishes it. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now, we know 
from John 6:44 that in this age only those whom the Father names can be called, right? Except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So he has to open the mind and call people now and then select a few out of that. At this point, the beginning of the millennium, he's going to open it up so anyone can come and worship God who will be on earth. That happens at the beginning of the millennium. It also happens at the beginning of the great white throne judgment when all those who have lived and died and never had a chance at salvation will be resurrected and be given a chance to come and drink of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now, who does he tell to overcome? Revelation 2 and 3, all the churches. <coughs> so, only those who are called even have a chance to overcome Satan in the world. The rest of the world's out there with Satan in the world. So, those who overcome are going to be church people. That's all. No one else. They're the only ones given the opportunity to repent and overcome. But they're the ones that will inherit all things as the bride of Christ. It's already mentioned the bride up there in verse 2. Then he gives a category of sinners who will not be there, and they'll go into the second death or the lake of fire. Then in verse 9, There came to me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, <clears throat> the seven last plagues will have been finished by then, but it was one of the same seven angels. And talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So as this new heaven and new earth comes down, an integral part of that is this angel showing that the bride is there in the new Jerusalem coming down. Christ is there sitting on his throne, so she has to be because we'll ever be with the Lord. Jude, uh, let me thumb back just a moment as a thought here. Uh, Jude 14 mentions something along this, this line. Oh, I know what it says. It talks about how he'll come with ten thousands of his saints. Well, he has to come the first time, the second time, after being in the desert, and resurrect and change his bride. Okay? Then when he comes back to make war, it says here in verse 14, Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Now that tells you right there, as Revelation 7 is correct, the 144,000 would be tens of thousands. Not millions, tens of thousands. First resurrection will be totally and entirely 144,000, the bride of Christ. These are the first fruits. No more, no less. 714, I think that one is. <clears throat> okay, it says, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Uh, and he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God. <clears throat> the bride will have the glory of God. Remember I said in the, on atonement, the queen of glory. Because we'll have, at that point, we'll be the bride, the queen of Christ, and we'll have His glory. And her light was like a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone and clear as crystal. Not just Christ, but her light. 
She's on the same level as Christ at that point. I mean, he's in charge. He's the husband. (laughs) But she has the same glory that Christ has. Will be made God. Herbert Armstrong was absolutely right. And had a wall great and high and twelve gates, twelve angels, the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So we'll be spiritually put into one of the tribes. There'll be twelve. <coughs> and the apostles will be in charge of those tribes, as Christ told them very clearly. Now, it doesn't mean blood people of Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, or whoever, because the, even among the twelve apostles, there were brothers who had the same ethnicity or race, same tribe. So this is a spiritual designation. 12,000 from 12 tribes, 144,000. So you, it doesn't matter whether you are black or white or yellow or brown or green as a human. You will be placed in one of those tribes as a grafted-in Israelite and will have the same glory. There will be no difference between who was a Gentile here and who was an Israelite once we are placed in the kingdom of God. We'll all be one. And you will be placed in whatever tribe Christ puts you. A spiritual thing, not physical blood. Physical blood, there won't be any physical blood. We'll all be spirit. And Paul said that when the Gentiles were grafted in, they were the same as the Israelites. No difference whatsoever. There's no room for any racism whatsoever among the called out of God. If you've got any racist thoughts, attitudes, or whatever from childbirth and teaching, get rid of them. That's something you've got to overcome. There is no racism with God. He made all humans. He loves the entire world. Israel and Gentile, everybody. He just called Israel because Abraham was righteous to be an example of the rest of the world, and we've been a really stinky one then we're going to be destroyed for it. So let's not be proud that we have some Israelite blood. Let's be thankful we can have the Spirit of God. And blood matters not. Okay? That's a sermon in itself. Anyway, this city has streets of gold and walls of gold, and each gate was a pearl Imagine the oyster. Uh, the street was pure gold and transparent glass, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. That's something we didn't understand in Worldwide. The Father and the Son are coming at the beginning of the millennium to rule the earth, and this will be the headquarters of the universe henceforth. The New Jerusalem. God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof, and the light of the bride is there as well, which we just read a few verses back. So there is a fourth time that Christ comes at the end time. This time with His bride, with His Father, and the heavenly Jerusalem. Described as... 12 times 12, the 144,000 comprise the city. And the throne is the Father and the Son. 
and we'll all be together forevermore. Uh, that's all I have time for. Maybe we'll pick it up in Zechariah 14, and I'll go on and show you a little more there that fits well with this, but I've pushed it too far already, so let's quit. <laughs>